You're listening to Baltimoreans, home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Happy trade deadline, Baltimoreans. Happy trade deadline. Can I tell you guys what's happening right now? Because it's so lovely. I am looking into a video screen, and on that screen is my dear friend and fellow Baltimorean, Alan Smith. And he is swaying back and forth because he has his baby daughter strapped to his chest. And we are about to try. Got that infant (laughs) sway going. We are about to try recording a podcast without waking her up. So if we're going a little. 1950s masterpiece theater on my end that's the uh that's the that's the the dulcet tones we're trying to evoke well isn't it sort of appropriate smith here you know the chaos of the trade deadline characterized the early part of this week and now things are starting to even out and settle in we're beginning to understand the natural rhythms of the new world order Jack Five Flaherty. out of seven from the Yankees and the Jays. Yes, yes. Jack Flaherty has rediscovered his high-velocity fastball, and we can all just rest easy. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? We, can, we don't have to feel stress. That's how to interpret this, right? Exactly, exactly. And uh, Sam and I are making our first pilgrimage uh, to Orioles Park at Camden Yards this Sunday. To Look watch out, the, Baltimore! Uh, triumphant return of uh, Buck Showalter to the yard. We coming, we coming. Here's the first question for you, Alan Smith. Okay. If you were going to be at the game tonight, uh, Friday, when we are recording this game one of the series against the Mets, would you give much discussion of this on Twitter? Would you give Buck Showalter a standing ovation when he was announced before the first game of the series? Hell yeah. Not Thank even you. close. Not that even close. That is the correct answer. <laughs> I feel like, um, I mean, I guess, I guess there's sort of a middle ground of like, I would clap but stay in my seat, maybe, that like some people could mm-hmm. reasonably take and I wouldn't have a problem with it. But the idea that like the amount of time and love and energy and frankly like relevance that Buck Walter brought to the Orioles um, – shall not be forgot. And, yeah. you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about, you know, maybe he's a, he is an old school manager and maybe he's not the sort of like that the, the Orioles have in some ways completely repudiated the Buck Showalter methodology and all the choices they made directly after Buck Showalter leaving. Um, doesn't matter. Doesn't yeah. matter. Still buckled <clears throat> up, baby. Let's go. Yeah. I think... <laughs> I think there's something that he did that it's impossible to quantify, which is that particularly for fans of our generation, right? You and I are both uh, 40 to 41 years old. Um, (laughs) We um, kind of came of age as fans during a time... Seven Orioles. Yeah, during a time when the team was really good, but baseball was also a very different sport. And like the the game now is so different than it was then, not just philosophically, but also when it comes to steroids. 
<laughs> you know, like the the game now, it's a different game. And so like there is this version of the Orioles in our past where we think like, yes, winning is possible, but it sort of feels like a different world that that happened in. And then the world was remade. And the Orioles of the remade world were a study in futility. The, that's, this is the 14 consecutive losing seasons Orioles. And for a lot of us, I think our identity as Orioles fans very much locked in during that period. And the idea that we could dare to hope was so absurd. Like, this is what was so fun about the... This is where the idea of buckle up came from, right? And I know that older Orioles fans who are listening to this will be like, you whippersnappers don't even know what you're talking about. Let me talk to you about 1989. Um, 89 or 88, whatever year the Why Not Orioles were. Anyway, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and resp- I respect that. I'm just talking about for folks of our, of our vintage, it was Buck that changed that mindset. I think for our vintage and sort of like everybody younger, like anybody mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. became an Orioles fan and is now in their 30s or even in their late 20s, um, right. who didn't even have the 97 Orioles to like attach themselves to. Yeah. Buck Showalter represents the only time in living memory when the right. Orioles were, were relevant and good. And frankly, like um, didn't back down. Like the thing about Buck is always like, you know, he, he felt like he deserved to be there. And Mm -hmm. as a result, the Orioles players felt like they deserved to be there. And we've talked a little bit about the, you know, the trauma that we've all inherited from the end of the Buck Showalter era. But um, I think that the the fond memories so outweigh that, that, uh, yeah, I think anything other than a standing ovation is, is frankly ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting about You don't think he's going to get booed, do you? I hope not. I would be mortified if that kind happened. Kind of shocking. Yeah. And, but I think one of the things that's really interesting about this whole discourse and debate is, if you, you know, the strikes against Buck that people cite, obviously, are the, you know, having Ubaldo pitch uh, against Encarnacion in the wild card game and the 47-win season worst in franchise history. And but those, that was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, th- my thing about both of those is, yes, they were terrible. Yes, they hurt very much. But the thing that was different about both of those, for me, just speaking personally, is those hurt because for the first time in my adult life as an Oriole fan, I did when those things happened, I didn't think... Oh, of course. Of course right. this you would expected, happen. You expected other. I expected us to do well. And mm-hmm. I don't want to get too dramatic here uh, seven minutes into the broadcast, but um, this is also Baltimore on, so you folks know what you signed up for. Um, what what we're really talking about, Smith, is like faith. Like Buck Showalter planted faith where there was no faith. Um, For me, just again, speaking personally, there is a spiritual, he changed my spirit Mm. um, with regard to this thing that is so deeply important to me. And nothing is ever going to take up, nobody else is ever going to live in that space. He would have had to have like so 
profoundly betrayed my heart. Like, he would have had to have turned out to be such a monster of a human being for for that feeling to go away. It's just always going to be there. I think that the underlying faith idea is... Um, yeah, you know, when when we when we started this podcast, which was sort of like, I guess, the right before the beginning of the Showalter era, is that mm-hmm. right? <laughs> um, and I think it was it was very early on. He'd been the manager for like a season and a half, I think. Okay, um, and we were sort of at that point. He was still, well, he was a Yankees retread, and mm-hmm. he was sort of like he had not put his stamp on or roots in Baltimore in quite the same way. But, you know, we talk about like the podcast being a home for the all weather fan, because that was really the only kind of fan that um, had made it through the <laughs> darkness. Um, everybody else yeah. from fair weather on to like reasonably tolerant um, had every reason to kind of fuck off and leave. Um, mm-hmm. But the, I think that the, like the, endless stupid hopefulness of, of, you know, spring training, another year, the rebirth of mm-hmm. baseball as the rebirth mm-hmm. of the seasons um, yeah. is like kind of a, a, a core piece of how you and I um, think about the game. And to have that um, faith, you know, you have to reinvest every year. It takes a little bit. Got to mm-hmm. gin yourself back up. And to yep. have that sort of fall on fallow ground, um, not fallow, um, uh, to have that fall on salted ground for 14, <laughs> for 14 years. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think that you can overstate how important it was to suddenly have that faith be um, yeah. um, reflected back at us in some way. It's like, oh, no, this was worth something. This was possible. This was not just um, masochistic uh, suffering. I think as Orioles fans, as baseball fans, as sports fans, as humans, it can be so easy for us to look at the recurrent frustrations that we experience with the things or the people that we love and forget how deep the roots are and forget that the present doesn't happen in a historical vacuum. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about this week is there was all this panic literally leading up to the seconds before the trading deadline. <laughs> like, here we go again. The Orioles aren't going to do anything. They're not going to make a consequential move. This team doesn't care about winning. They never have. They never do what's necessary. And I, oop, Jack Flaherty. <laughs> Hey, that's fun. Um, And so far, with one start in the books, it is very fun. It is fun. I enjoyed myself. But in terms of this whole idea about the Orioles that they never do what it takes to win, they never, like, make the big move. For some reason, I it was probably Immaculate Grid. I was casting around uh, baseball reference recently, and I was looking up Albert Bell's lifetime (laughs) statistics. And Albert Bell... At the time he came to the Orioles, was one of the most terrifying hitters in baseball, and and at that time he was pacing to be one of the most terrifying hitters in 
baseball history. Yeah. Not just hit for a good average, not just hit for extraordinary power. Walked all the time. Walked almost more than he struck out for his career. Had a super cannon of an arm in the outfield. Um, and we a great signed player. him. And all, one of the all time, on pace to be one of the all time greats. And we signed him to a very lucrative free agent contract. And he came to Baltimore. And in his first year, he went nuts. He had an amazing season. In his second year, he was hurt a little bit, I think. Didn't play totally the full season, but he still played like 140 games. Put up mega numbers. And then, this is something we always forget. He quit with tens of millions of dollars left on his contract that we owed him. He just quit. He walked away and he never came back. Hmm. And I still don't know the full story there. And I, I may even be getting some, a few of those like details wrong, but you can understand when you've had an experience like that, when you've had an experience like the Chris Davis contract, why organizationally, this is still the Angelos era that we're talking about. There is a little bit of a sense in the, now this is not to excuse all of the annoying slash confusing things. This administration let's call it has done but there is a way in which the idea that the current regime is like forget outside players forget unknown quantities from outside the organization if we can have success with homegrown self-assembled known quantity players that we have developed that feels like a safer bet the reason they feel that way is because in their experience that is true (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it was interesting to see, like, Elias basically say also, like, when you're a buyer, I think his quote was, when you're a buyer at the trade deadline, you always lose the trade. Um, because mm. he views that is someone, someone coming in, like Flaherty, who is in a contract year um, mm-hmm. and is a rental. Um, as a entirely different kind of commodity than the players that had to go out who are under team control, who are, you know, whose ceiling has maybe yet to be established, who, like, Elias looking at everyone as essentially different um, assets, uh, had trade assets that he values more <laughs> to get something that, uh, you know, hopefully will be very good for the Orioles, but probably will only be very good for the Orioles for six months. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we can re-sign him, but uh, that's a maybe. (laughs) And and that's sort of like, I think that there's two pieces of it, right? There's one is the like devils that you know. We've seen these people. We know their warts. We know their, and we don't know what's happening in the psyche. And and we know they want to be here. And we don't know what's happening in their psyches of Albert Bells or, um, or even like a Verlander or a, or a Scherzer. Um, the world may never know what was going on in Albert Bell's head. <laughs> yeah, that's a you know that's an interview that I would love to see someone track down now. Woof! Uh, that guy, yeah. Was it like anyway. twenty years after the he walked away? Is that about where we are? Thirty years? Uh, where are we? Twenty five years? 
We're getting close. We might actually be past it. We might be past it. I think it was 98, 99. Um, well, that would be a 25-year anniversary. Might be a really great podcast, Sam. Just saying. Um, yeah, that's that's true. 30, yeah, 30 for 30. What if it I was told 2000. You that, it was 2000. What if I told you that one of the greatest potential ball players of all time just walked away and no one noticed? <laughs> no one remembers. Can I tell right? you, Smith? I mean, that's in- what's crazy about that. Anyway, back to our prospects. Um, I think that there's two <laughs> things happening, right? One is like, you know, their psyches, you know, they want to be here. And the other is like, Elias is such a new age manager that mm-hmm. he only mm-hmm. sees the potential value of these guys under over the next five years. And it kills him. It kills mm-hmm. him to watch that value go yeah. somewhere else. Um for something that is essentially a six-month rental. And, and mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's an argument for, like, a Dylan Cease contract. That's you announcing it over the public address system. Dylan, Dylan, Exactly. That's an argument for a contract like that, where you give up more, but you have the guy for three years, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. ostensibly at the height of his powers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, he could be a, he could be a nut job too. He could, mm-hmm. he could, uh, they're all, they're all fallible. Um, I'm going to be really interested to skip ahead a little bit uh, to see like how much continued nibbling we do in the off season, especially around yeah. more pitchers. Um, because like, it does seem to me, that it, it should be, it should be that Elias is more comfortable doing free agent signings than he is doing trades. Hmm. Using his own internal logic, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Where like you don't mm-hmm. have to give up an asset. You don't have to set anything on fire. You don't have to like trade anything out of your system. Your, your empire remains the same. You're just trading money for a good player uh, instead of organizational assets. Um which kind of makes this last offseason a little bit confusing to me. Um, but hopefully <laughs> this next offseason, um, that, would, that would be different. Um, we, can, we can start talking about names much, much later after the Orioles go deep into the playoffs. But um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you're, you're right. I mean, that, that is going to be the next interesting wrinkle to all of this because, you know, as we have talked about exhaustively, as everybody who loves the Orioles has thought about exhaustively and said in their group chats exhaustively, you know, for a while there was the liftoff lie um, that, you know, Elias said it's liftoff and then he didn't do the things that made it seem like liftoff, either at the deadline last year or in the offseason of this most uh, this most recent offseason. And then, but of course, he's like vindicated now for all of that because we are the second best team in the major leagues. Um, th- like it's very hard to, and, and when you think about the big free agents that were on the market um, this past off season, that we all were clamoring for him to do something with, it's very, very, very difficult to identify. You know, like one of them. Like, it's very, very hard to quibble with the results that he's been able to get with what he decided to do. Um, Like, Adam Frazier has been more valuable 
I would argue, than Xander Bogarts. Yikes! <laughs> um, so and and fundamentally, like while we are playing the second, while we are becoming the second te- best team in baseball, he's given ample. I mean, Brandon Hyde also, but he's given ample opportunity for Gunnar Henderson to turn into uh, the shooting star that he apparently is at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, like, he's stick, you know, Colton Kowser came in, was yeah. below 100 yesterday, roped a nice double, hopefully, you know, coming out Off of the, the Mets schneid. series, he's, he's getting up near the Mendoza line. But, uh, <laughs> you know, like that effort of continuing to give those guys at bats is really... It's really something, and um, and I to think do it, that in the context of a contending team, exactly, th- this exactly. is playing with fire. It's playing with fire, but you know, right now he keeps on, he keeps on drawing against an inside straight and getting it. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's it's a to to change metaphors in midstream, um, <laughs> and and so you know, I think until that hot hand goes, it, I was really interested in that Jays game yesterday. Um, because like, I feel like earlier in the season, uh, strong start from your starting pitcher leaves the game with a three, one lead. Um, and you know, usually what has happened for this entire season is that the bats sort of go quiet and it's up to a somewhat shaky bullpen to keep that three, one lead extant. And the tying run will come to the plate in both the eighth and the ninth innings, and <laughs> maybe we'll wriggle out of it, right? Like, that's yes. sort of like how the whole thing goes. We'll clench the entire time. And what was so interesting about that game to me is not only did we continue to manufacture runs, every inning after he left the game, we were tacking on another, you know, run so such that Bautista never even had to get up, which is amazing. But also... Um, you know, secretly, the relievers that did come in the game um, were didn't didn't give the Jays a sniff. There was mm-hmm. no moment watching that game where I was like, "Uh oh, here's that rally, here's yeah. that bum clench in time." Um, and I just I just want to mark that down because it yeah. has been <laughs> um, the game that I've been asking for for a while, uh, uh-huh. and. Uh-huh. Um, it's nice that occasionally it, it manages to happen. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, another thing I've been thinking about a little bit is, and obviously so many things could change. So many things could change. And there's all this, these lingering questions about the workload of all of our starters, except for Kyle Gibson <laughs> and Cole Irvin, who's in the bullpen, um, how everybody's above. I'm okay their, with Cole Irvin, man. In Let the him, pen, or you? Yeah, no, no. I think he's. A, I think he's like a decent mop-up guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I'm with you. I with. I'm with you. I. You know. I feel like yeah, those are lingering questions. But yes, it was very easy momentarily when Fuji came in and single-handedly destroyed Grayson Rodriguez's otherwise very, very high-quality start. Well, Grayson had played some role in that too. But um, to be like, oh God, oh God. Here it is. We, we didn't Fuji's do enough at so the deadline, man. He's unhittable, but he's also like so wild. Yeah, I'm never going to 
take a breath that goes below my Adam's apple when he pitches uh, for the rest of the time he's in an Orioles uniform. It's never going to happen. But um, my thing is, if you if you zoom out a little bit from the moment of watching Fuji melt down, and you think about it in the context of this emotional training that we have as Orioles fans that we have been talking about, the the Elias framing of the organization starts to come into focus a little bit. And yes, there are these lingering questions, but really it's the thing that we've been talking about since the very first episode we released this season, which is that there is, for the first time in our emotional memory as Orioles fans, a depth to this team and to this organization that is going to is going to hold us the rest of the way because yeah Grayson still needs one more tightening of the screw to become truly elite. We saw in his most recent start more than any of his other ones I would argue how truly excellent he is capable of being. For the first 5 and 2 thirds innings of that Blue Jays start, he was like untouchable. It was so exciting to watch. Um but he still does not have that last little ace piece, which is like I'm getting through. Like I'm, I'm going to go out. And I'm going to. I will strike. Vlad Guerrero. I'm. I'm not going to yes. give in to Vlad Guerrero there. And you saw him like Guerrero fouled off three or four ninety nine to a hundred mile an hour well placed fastballs, and you know the the ace level guy is like, well, you're not going to foul this one off, and like blows him away, and. and I think Grayson will get there. That was but a really because interesting. That was a really interesting matchup. It was so interesting. Um but because he's not there yet, you know, he ends up giving up the walks and then Fuji comes in and does what he does. Um but and it was very easy in that moment to think like, "Oh Jesus, um what are we going to do the rest of the way if if this is how it's going to go?" But we have reinforcements coming in middle relief. Voth is going to be healthy for the first time, maybe all season, and he's coming back. Givens, I think, is back on rehab assignment. Hopefully he is something resembling his old self. Um, Tyler Wells, once he gets his reset together, becomes your Cole Irvin guy, another right-handed Cole Irvin in the bullpen. John Means, when he comes back, can definitely be like a stupid good middle reliever and maybe even a credible spot starter down the stretch. Those things are all waiting in the wings for us. And like not maybe not all of those bets pay off, but not for the first time in our emotional memory. They don't all have to for us to sustain our success. We really only need one of those things to work to offset the uncertainty of Fuji as a middle reliever as he continues to develop. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to find a little bit more breath (laughs) is, I guess, the theme of all this. And to enjoy this new version of the Orioles that is so differently made than the Showalter era Orioles. Still going to clap for him, though. Still going to clap for him. Still going to clap for him. Um, Well, Smith, 
you know, we have, as usual, reflected deeply and asked uh, thought-provoking questions on the show today. But as usual, we there's a big one that we forgot, as we as we tend to do, and that's okay, that's fine. But I want to make sure that before we sign off here, uh, we do ask the unasked question, which is um, this. What do you call uh, Henry Yerudia when uh, he is less of a, a, a former outfield prospect and more of a metaphysical Hindu deity? who symbolizes something in our emotional and spiritual life. Hmm. Uh, how about Henry Vishnurudia? You nailed it. You, Alan Smith, got it in one. That's the first time in months. You should have a baby strapped to your chest every time we record. <laughs> Still asleep. Still asleep, everybody. We did it. 30 minutes in. Things are looking up. Um, uh, happy hey, Mets hey, series, Baltimoreans. Baltimoreans, if, uh, if you're in the stadium um, on Sunday, drop us a line at Morons. Come say hi. Love you guys. Talk to you soon. Baltimoreans. Baltimoreans.